Now, some have argued that this is one of the biggest hoax, hoaxes per, 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 perpetrated, I got it, on the human race. Uh, uh, and they, they kind of started all of this stuff to, 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 to create a, a, their own religious brand. Uh, but the truth is it doesn't hold water because virtually every one of those early followers died a torturous death. They were executed for saying that Jesus Christ is alive. And all they had to say was, uh, I lied and here's the body and nobody ever did anything. They declared the truth of the resurrection till their dying breath. And so Blaise Pascal, the, the French physicist, philosopher, theologian, he said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut and uh, their lives are really on the line. That's when you find out what you really believe. That's his point. And so, as we try and make this connection now between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I want to read another quote to you from Kenneth Latourette, the Yale historian. And he asks this question, why among all the cults and philosophies competing in the Roman uh, Greco world did Christianity succeed and outstrip all the others? Though it had a greater persecution than all the others and less uh, backers from influential people. How did it overcome and outlive the very empire that sought to uproot it? It is clear that the, at the beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy. Read resurrection power. Perhaps unequaled in our history, without which the future course of Christianity is inexplicable. And so said, Sue said to me yesterday, she said, yeah, what a difference a day makes, but what a difference the third day makes when Jesus rose again from the dead. So coming to the passage that, uh, and we're not going to spend too much time in it, uh, what, what uh, Leslie read to us in John chapter 8, there's this kind of heated conversation between Jesus and uh, the religious leaders of the day. These Pharisees are are mad at the fact that Jesus is getting bigger crowds than them, that he's doing signs and wonders and miracles, and they are feeling the kind of uh, insecurities of losing market share as the Messiah breaks into history and releases this tidal wave of love and affection and truthfulness and teaching. And, uh, and so when he says things like we're about to read, uh, uh, you can understand how and why people push back at him with a, with a measure of anger and uh, cynicism. But Jesus said things like this, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And notice the hint there toward resurrection. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, you're, you're the earthly. I am from above, I've come from heaven. I'm in another category. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. And yet he's fully human and identifying with them. I told you that you would die in your sins and if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die 
in your sins. So you can imagine it's quite a heated kind of a thing because Jesus is, is amazingly loving, but he's amazingly truthful. So he's going for the jugular. When you really love people, the greatest gift you can give them is the truth. And so he's just really stating it in a way that might not be palatable, but it's coming from the most loving heart in the universe. And so the first shocking claim uh, is that he claims to be our only savior. He claims to be our only savior. And if you see those hints of resurrection, he's claiming to be our only ultimately risen savior. If you do not believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. If I am he, if you do not believe that I'm the Messiah, the one sent from heaven to save the world, then there's no efficacy. There's no application of what I've come to do in this world. And Easter doesn't mean anything. If you're saying you're not a sinner, if you're resisting my grace and my love. And of course, that's exactly what was happening. And so they respond by mocking and insulting him. But Jesus is not easily put off and he genuinely loves them and he presses upon them their need for a savior. Uh, and, and everybody needs a savior. I think uh, Bob Dylan, in the days when he was flirting with Christianity, he sang a song like that. You can see I'm quite musical. Jamie Winehouse, Bob Dylan. Da, da, da. I'm also dating myself. Sorry about that. When he claims to be the savior with that audience, for generations later that we'd be reading this, he's claiming to every reader to say, I, am, I want to be your savior too. And regardless of how moral or religious or secular, everybody needs to work out what to do with their guilt, their shame, their brokenness, their deepest disappointments, and even the shadow parts of ourself. We need somebody who's way more loving than we are toward ourselves, and at the same time, way more truthful. And Jesus is effectively saying to these guys, if, if you don't believe that I am the Savior, you can't be saved. In effect, he's saying that he has got sole agency to God, and I don't want to lose you too quickly because he's making a truth claim that is exclusive. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, in, a, in a, an age like we're living in, the most exalted virtue in the 22nd century, or whatever we are now, is what? It's tolerance. <laughs> It's you've got to find a way to just include everybody in every argument uh, or every conversation. I think we should listen well, and historically Christians haven't been as respectful as they should have been, but I want to just probe this issue of uh, where so many people, uh, you know, are fighting with other religions instead of listening. I think there are many good things we can learn. I've been to India 23 times. I've... I've, I've met many fantastic Hindu people. When we've sat down and we've compared notes, we've agreed that we, 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 you know, many of them, some of them have come to faith, others have said, we prefer our pantheon of 300,000 deities where worshipers kind of you know, find a select few that they worship. And it's, 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 uh, it's without being uh, in any way unkind, uh, it's a religion of massive contradiction. 
And yet, every single Hindu is an image bearer, created in the image of God. And so what Jesus would say to these guys in front of him in the pages, he says to everyone. And he's reaching out to, her, to us. And we can learn from Buddhists who tell us that most of what's wrong with the world is because of the level of consumption and selfishness that we live with. And uh, what's wrong with the world is us, the drives to just acquire and consume and the levels of inequality that emerge out of this uh, has caused so much of the suffering in the world. So essentially, Jesus is claiming to be a savior that loves everybody with such a passionate love, wants everyone to experience his, his uh, salvation, but he's not afraid to go to the opposition. He's not afraid to say, unless you believe that I am the savior, you'll die in your sins. And so it's important to just honestly and warmly and lovingly reflect of what does Buddhism tell us, because Buddhism doesn't claim to have a savior. Nirvana, that quest for the ultimate uh, peace is actually the quest for nothingness. Buddha identified our problem with self-centeredness, but his whole goal was to lose our sense of self by the Eightfold Noble Path, a rigorous set of disciplines that probably have helped people to be free from self-centeredness. What were Buddha's last words? Strive without ceasing. Hinduism, like Buddhism, but a little bit more pessimistic, says you can overcome your sins, your faults. Or you'll never overcome your sins if you don't pay the karmic debt in this life and in succeeding reincarnations. The issue is the reason we suffer in this life is payback from what we did in the previous one. And uh, if Buddhism says strive without ceasing, toward nirvana, Hinduism says, strive to pay back your debts from previous lives. It sounds like an awful lot of hard work, not a lot of good news in there. And Islam uh, is different to both Buddhism and Hinduism, but presents a personal God as opposed to impersonal karma. And wonderfully, Islam does speak of the mercy of God 114 times in the surahs, these are chapters of the Quran, they all start off with mentioning the mercy of Allah. But when you probe a little, who is Allah merciful to? He's merciful to the obedient. There's no mercy for the disobedient. Mercy has to be earned. And uh, again, it's this treadmill. You need to strive without ceasing to be worthy of God's mercy. So Eric Brunner writes, these religions all the same, all share the same optim optimism of self salvation. It's something you gotta do to be forgiven. The way to salvation is to strive without ceasing. It's kind of like ladder climbing. And how different it is for Jesus on Good Friday as he hangs on the cross and praise, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The work is not being done in the hearts and the lives of sinners and those who crucified him and those who tortured him. The work is being done by the most perfect, pure person who's hanging on the cross, 
as a substitute for our sins. He's paying it all for us. He's absorbing in himself the punishment that is due to every one of us on the cross. That's why it's a Good Friday. That's why it's paradoxical. It costs Jesus everything and we gain scandalous treasure. And he says in his dying breath, the last words of the Savior is, it is finished. It is finished. The Greek uh, is tetelestai or Latin, I'm not sure which language. Tetelestai, which simply means paid in full. Religion says do. The gospel says done as a free gift of grace. Religion says climb the ladder to earn and deserve. The gospel says step onto the escalator of grace and the free gift of God's uh, transforming, regenerating power as he lifts you into a new life as you start to participate in the resurrection's transforming power. Now, of course, we're stuck here because some, or they, some might be stuck here because some think, isn't this just too exclusive? I can't get over Jesus being so exclusive. But when you say that, just that statement is more exclusive than anything Jesus said. Uh, if you say, for argument's sake, good people to get, to get to God by striving to be good, you just made an exclusive statement. The only way you can get to God is be good enough. What's the problem with that? It's because when I look in the mirror, I see the guy who will never be good enough. I look at my life and I'm thinking, oh God, I've got so many things from way back my whole life and since that I'm ashamed of. I've got so, so much stuff that I wish I had been wiser and I'm so sorry for some of that stuff. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is it never excludes ordinary people like Rigby and whatever your name is from the love of God and the mercy of God if we come to him and acknowledge that what he did on the cross, he did for us. And the second thing we can say is uh, if striving without ceasing leads to, to God, think about it, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Just, just let's do what we have to do and say, Jesus, thanks for playing. Why did Jesus have to die? Remember him in the garden crying out, God, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And the paraphrase of Yahweh's answer is, no, there is no other way that sinful, self-centered people can be united with me. I'm a sinless God, and except you die on their behalf, they can never be united with me. And so if we believe this notion that all roads lead to God, we make a mockery of the cross and what Jesus went through in the garden. Much of that is not necessarily intentional. It's because we've just heard the lie for so long. It becomes an echo of our culture that finds a home in us. And I'm just wanting to be that loving pastor who says, stop it, take a pause this Easter. Let's just consider why did he have to die? And Jesus is not, he's not playing dodgems with what he did on the cross. He came to die willingly. He laid down his cross. We could say to Jesus, don't bother dying, Jesus. Back then, we can save ourselves. We'll find somebody who spins the exact combination of goodness, deeds, devotions, duties, and dogma. And uh, we can even get a personalized option of that, plug and play. And by the way, Jesus, thanks for trying to help. 
that we would be dead in our sins. That's what he said, unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe that I am the savior of the world, it's shocking. You'll die in your sins. So moving on to the second big claim, there's another claim that he makes a few verses later in John 8. These words that we heard, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. The second shocking claim is Jesus doesn't only claim to be a savior, drum solo, he claims to be a divine savior. This is a different category of savior, and you're gonna see it in this, uh, in, the, in this point, and then we'll come into land and go to communion. Just remember that Abraham lived at that time, 2000 BC, so it's 2000 years before this conversation is going down. And just remember Abraham's role with Jews, Muslims, and Christians. He's regarded as the common father of all of those faiths. I'm not saying he is the common father, I'm saying they regard, they have a claim on Abraham in some unique way. And then Jesus in verse 56 makes an outrageous claim that 2,000 years ago, Abraham already knew that one of his future descendants would be the one through whom salvation would come to the whole earth. He's making this claim that Abraham anticipated my day. And then the reason it's so shocking is he condenses it into these five words. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. What are the reasons why this is so shocking? Look at, look at this. Jesus is only about 33 years old at the time. It's shocking because Jesus at 33 is claiming that he was around before Abraham lived. In other words, he's claiming pre-existence. He's claiming that he's an unusual person. Yes, he's fully human, but he has some kind of, uh, of connection to, to life in, 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 a, in, in a most amazing way and the story of God in history. The second shocking thing is he claims to be transcendent over time. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. Then it would have just meant he had pre-existence. But he said before Abraham was, I am. He kind of claimed some kind of eternal kind of present tense. Something like one without beginning and one without end. Someone who is divine. He is hinting at the fact that yes, he's the savior of the world, but there's a different category of just being another man. He is the divine savior. He is transcendent over all time in a kind of eternal present dimension. He is without beginning or end. Now at this time, at this particular part of the conversation, the religious guys could kind of, they could kind of handle a little bit of Jesus's 
presentation of his, his uh, calling to be the savior of the world. They could handle that. And if it was just about claiming I was pre-existent and I was transcendent, they could have just locked him up in the institution. <laughs> so the guy's crazy, he's had too many marshmallows or whatever it is. But what comes next is absolutely scandalous and shocking. The most shocking thing, and it's missed by non-Jewish ears at that time. Since then, we've had many opportunities to do the deep dive on this stuff, but it was very shocking. What was so shocking? So shocking that they wanted to kill him. This is when they got really mad. Spitting viper mad. Every Jew knew that the name of God was Yahweh. When uh, God met with Moses at the burning bush and he was called to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he said, who shall I say has sent me? And God says to you to say, I am that I am has sent you. The eternally existent one has decreed. The one who is in charge of all of history, the one who raises kingdoms and pulls them down, the one who is omnipotent. And his name, the, 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 the abbreviated version is, I am that I am became just I am. I am, the name for God. And there's tremendous significance as you read through the gospels, the number of times Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I think there's like about 30 or 20 to 30 of these I am's in the gospel. But when he said, before Abraham was, I am, he had just attributed to himself the very name of God. You have now got not just a savior, you have now got a divine savior who claims to have been sent from heaven. That's the language. He says, I've come from heaven. You're from below. I'm going back and you can't come with me. And if you, if you don't believe that I'm the one, you'll die in your sins. Folk, who could conceive of such an amazing way for God to rescue us? We sang the song about how uh, as part of God's creation, we've run from him. The beauty of the gospel is that God broke into history in the person of a little bundle of baby in Bethlehem to visit this, this planet, to gate crash, to break into history, to preach good news, to heal the sick, to forgive sins, and ultimately to become the sacrificial lamb that the Old Testament anticipated to be this savior. But you can't get it clearer than this. This is the most beautiful language. He's saying, I am the divine savior. And of course, we need to agree that if Jesus had not risen from the dead, if he just died as a human being with a long history on a cross, he would not be a divine savior. He would just be a guy who'd left some nice teachings behind. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we would not believe that he was divine. And, and if he was not divine, could he be a living savior? No, he couldn't. And so here are the two points. Only a divine savior can forgive us. <laughs> How could a sinful man, an ordinary human being, dying on a cross atone for the sins of the world? 
it would require a sinless man to die on our behalf. And since God is sinless, we needed this God-man exclusively to be able to die on our behalf. Secondly, only a divine risen Savior, and here's the really good news for Easter, a divine risen Savior gives a new power to unravel our selfishness, to make us brand new people on the inside. What's the point of just getting all our sins forgiven if there's not a new power that invades our lives and makes us brand new people on the inside? What's, what's the point of just getting over the guilt of the bad decisions if we're not somehow occupied by a new power that starts to powerfully transform us on the inside? And this risen Savior, when he raised from the dead, he pours, when he rose from the dead, he eventually pours out the Holy Spirit and he indwells us, Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. We get this new nature with a new capacity to live in ways that were never, ever possible. We don't just get forgiveness of sins and then pull, try and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to improve our behaviors. No, no, no. It is beautiful. If anyone calls themselves a Christian, old things have passed away. Everything becomes brand new. Leah Tolstoy says the resurrection changes everything and it brings meaning to everything. So let's wrap it all up. Jesus' shocking claim. <laughs> I am the only divine risen saviour. And if this is true, then he's available to everyone. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come. This is the most inclusive invitation. It says to everyone, yes, he has a specific salvic role in history, but he offers to everyone, whosoever will may come. Let him who is thirsty come and drink freely from these waters of life. He died, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Became a propitiation for our sins, but not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, it's times like this, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, where we, our lives connect in a deeper way. And if you're exploring the claims of Christ, this is an opportunity to say, what's missing in my life? Do I need to go on a journey? Do, you know, do I need to explore this faith a little more? And I would say, we want to do everything we can to help you on that journey. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we need the roots of the gospel to go deeper into us. We need a greater confidence as well as a greater humility. We were powerless to save ourselves. We are not better than anybody in our culture, in our church, in the Rosnick. We are not better than anybody. We're simply rescued by the scandalous grace of God. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, so what? Here are a few little things I'm just going to rattle off and then into communion. If Jesus was raised from the dead, think about it, then Yahweh, God, has approved of his death on the cross. And what he accomplished on the cross is the vindication of God's wrath against sin 
and the justification of our sinful lives before him. We get included in Christ. If God has raised his son, God has said, it, that, that, those words of Jesus, uh, tetelestai, it's finished. God is saying exactly, well done, my son, you've done what we've agreed to do in eternity's dateless past. This has now happened. Secondly, if he is the risen savior, then he has the title deeds of history. Then he is in charge of everything. If he is the risen savior, if he's God in the flesh and he's been raised from the dead, then we should do everything we can to read his words because everything he said is true and everything he said is about the future is true. He has the title deeds and he promises all wrongs will be righted. Think of the Ukraine, think of what's going on in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, the floods and the brokenness of the world and the suffering and the Folk, these are not the first rounds of this. It's part of human history. The world is in labor pains, as it were. It's longing for the new day. Jesus broke into history to tell us that the new day is coming and he's part of how everything is finalized. If Jesus is the risen savior, then he's accessible to us today, 24 seven. He is the living head over the church. Folk, if you're new to church, here's the good news. There's nothing perfect around any church. The good news about every church is that its head is perfect, not the leaders. Christ is the perfect head. And here's what a loving savior does, a risen savior, a divine savior. He's busy perfecting the church. And we've got to find our place in the church wherever uh, 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 we can mature as followers of Jesus. And we should avoid all the the criticisms and the gossip about this church going through a difficult time and that church, we've got to get back to saying there's only one perfect person and that's the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are really, really uh, carrying the burden of the environment and climate change and all of those things, give me a wave if that's a thing. Notice this, just the two of you. Okay, <laughs> notice this, the resurrection happened on planet Earth. It happened on this little speck of dust in the universe. And the great reversal and the great uh, uh, renewal of all things is gonna happen on this earth, particularly because Jesus died for the fault lines in our sin and the fault lines in all of creation when the fall happened. And he's gonna make all things new and there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Wow. God has our planet in his sights. And then the last point. Jesus didn't just come into this world to rescue and to save. He came to build a church. He came to invite everyone who followed him to be part of his mission. And Jesus has died so that, uh, so that multitudes and men and women can find homecoming in the grace of God. But the moment God rescues us, we are included in his mission to see others come to know and experience this scandalously good salvation. I just wanna eyeball you and say, just remember if you call yourself a Christ follower, your life is not the last frontier of the gospel. 
God saves us and then in his goodness makes us his own and he says, I want to showcase my glory through your life. I want to make you a billboard of my mercy to a watching world. I want to send you into the highways and byways. I want you to know when you go into your workplace, classroom, student, whatever it is, you have been commissioned with resurrection power to represent me in the world. And so we are the Easter people as John Paul, John Paul II said, Pope John Paul II, we are the Easter people and hallelujah is our song. And we're learning step by step to live our lives off the fragrance of an empty tomb. So believing in the Easter message, believing that he died on Good Friday, that's just history. We know that he died on, that's just history. No points for that. Believing that he died for your sins and my sins, that's what makes it personal. That's what makes it salvation. That's why I'm so glad you're hearing this message. You're hearing it through a really clumsy vessel, but it's still the message of God's uh, grace reaching out to you. I would imagine uh, the, the vision of a life free of guilt, free of shame, free of condemnation is something that we all long for in some way. And Jesus came because he knows it's the cry of the human heart. So I'd love to just pray for us. Can I ask you just to stand very briefly? Uh, we'll, I'm going to pray and then we're going to go to communion. And, uh, and then we'll close off with a song. Let's just pause a moment before the Lord. I'm just going to start by praying for people in the Ukraine and people in uh, in KZN and just feel like a, a mercy stirring in my heart. God, we come before you today thanking you for your most holy word. We come before you today thanking you that you're reaching out to us, that we matter to you. You could have left us alone, but you came to make yourself known. You came to reveal yourself to us and I'm praying Jesus that you'd become more real to us and that we capture something of what your heart feels. You want to save people, you want to rescue people. But when you look at what's happening in this brokenness of our world in places like the Ukraine and KZN with all of these floods, your heart breaks and our hearts get more tender. And we want to ask for your mercy, the mercy of a divine savior to fall on those places. We wanna ask you to push back the darkness. We wanna ask you to arrest evil. We wanna ask you to, yeah, to bring cloud bursts, not of rain, but of mercy and care and consideration. Many of us have got friends and family in KZN. God, the world is so broken and we need not just a change in circumstances, we need a divine risen Savior to be close to us, caring for us, reaching out to us. Lord, we need both salvation spiritually and those places need care and intervention. We just pray, let your kingdom come, extend the scepter of your authority over those places, push back the despair. Please Lord, in Christ's name. And for our very dear friends who are with us tonight from all parts of South Africa, we want to thank you for these good these guests. Thank you for the Word of God. 
Lord, we don't want to assume that everyone in this room has yielded their lives to the significant work you did on the cross. We don't assume that everybody has put their confidence in Christ as their risen personal Savior. And I want to pray for everyone in the room that there would be a tenderizing of our hearts toward that possibility. Jesus, make yourself real. We know the message tonight is true, but I want to ask in the coming hours and days and weeks, make it more real to our lives that we can say we, our deepest desire is to know you and the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, to really know you. I want to pray that we, our lives would come under the powerful grip of your grace, that you'd hold us, that you'd help us to know even when we're objecting and we're a bit cynical and pushing away, that you're still reaching out to us, wanting to include us in these eternal blessings that you secured for us on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray, be real. Anchor us, root us. Make the Easter message more meaningful in our hearts and lives for the sake of your name. And everybody said, okay, come on. He rose from the dead. But then on the night before he was betrayed, took the bread and he said, this is my body. Let's take our little cuppies or what those things are you got. Don't, don't take your little wafer out, put it in your hand. I know it seems unfair, I've got a big piece. He took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Before you eat it, say to two or three people around about you, broken for you. God is for us. Let's just say that. Whisper it to a few people. Broken for you. Likewise, he took the cup. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Friends, talk about in, being included. <laughs> There's nothing exclusive about this. It's exclusively those. It's our meal. It's the Christian meal that Jesus offers to everyone who names his name. There's no pecking order. There's no hierarchy. You can be a Christian. You can be coming to Christ tonight and be having your first communion. On Resurrection Sunday morning, you're as entitled to the person who's been on the road for 40, 50 years in the faith. Through his body and through his blood, God who is for us. Let's drink. And let's summon now. 
from the deepest part of us, our worship, our thanksgiving, our appreciation, our thunderous applause for God as we sing this final song.